Hey, welcome to the Living the Dream podcast. This is your host, Timmy Douglas, and the goal of this podcast is to create a community that inspires action, accountability, celebrates progress, and helps people make the right connections to take that next step towards their dreams and goals. If you're looking for any one-on-one coaching to pinpoint your purpose and start taking steps in that direction, make sure to contact me on my website, workwithtimmydouglas.com, or on social media. On that note, let's get into the show. All right, what up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of the Living the Dream podcast. Today on the show, we have Mandy Capehart, who is an author and grief coach. Mandy, how you doing? Hey, I'm doing really well today. Thank you for having me on your show. Of course. Thanks for coming on. And we'd like to jump right in. So if you could start with telling us a little bit more about yourself and what you'd like to do for fun, that'd be great. <laughs> I just recently decided I need more things to do for fun. So I took up bird watching. Number one. And I love to paddleboard. It is paddleboard season and I resent having to be indoors at all times. So there's my fun things. Um, Basically, like you said, I'm an author. I'm a grief coach. I, uh, in 2021, released my first book, Restorative Grief, Embracing Our Losses Without Losing Ourselves, which is a 31 day uh, memoir-ish style guide, uh, not guidebook, Yes. Guidebook. Sorry. My words are jumbled today. I'll get, I'll get taking, taking us through just loss and helping us unpack the way that it's not linear, but we've been taught to believe that it is that there are five steps. And once we get through the steps, we're done. And so a lot of my work as a professional in the grief industry has been just dismantling the myths about what grief is, what grief isn't and helping people really embrace what their values are and what their alignment with those values looks like in regards to their grief journey and finding healing. So everything I do in all the areas, I was telling a friend the other day, I need to stop working because everywhere I go, I see grief in some manifestation and it stirs something in me because I want to help people find what helps them feel fully alive. And and grief can really derail us from that vision for ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. I love that. So you got bird watching and paddle boarding. You're a grief coach. Tell (laughs) us what, like, we have the 31 day guide that kind of walks people through. Is it like 31 days grief is over? I assume it's not that. <laughs> not even, not even close. No. And that's the first thing that you, I address in the book is that it's set up in the framework of the idea that grief has five stages, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance, which never quite fit. It's, it was actually designed of course, as a response to observing people who were terminally ill and in observing their process, accepting their fate, accepting that they were going to die. These were the stages that they really went through. And some of them went through them, you know, immediately all five at once, but it never sat well with me that there were only five stages, so to speak. And so what I came up with in my own process after my mom died was recognizing that there's at least a sixth stage, if you want to call it that, which for me is restoration. And so the book itself is set up in five day chunks in a sense, uh, based on those five steps so that it's somewhat familiar, but really it's created so that here's 31 tools and questions you can approach very cautiously for yourself based on like what you recognize in yourself that you're feeling. So if you're recognizing massive amounts of anger, knowing that there are five entries in this book that are very short for the brain fog grievers that we all are, um, you can jump to that part of the book and say, well, let's talk about anger. Let's look behind it and say, what is it protecting me from? And 
approach our grief with an, a sense of authority, because really when we grieve, it feels unending. It's terrifying because it all interweaves with everything else in our life. And it's really overwhelming to think about even approaching one part of our grief, let alone finding healing or even finding a way to move through it. And so the whole book itself is really designed to be short and punchy and helpful in a way that doesn't feel like, cool, I have to read 10 pages before I get something out of this. I got you. I got you. Okay. I love that. And so what does your day-to-day look like in grief? Actually, I'm less interested in that. You can tell us what your day-to-day looks like in, as a grief coach. <laughs> I, I'm a little bit less interested in that and more interested in what is the most common misconception people have when it comes mm-hmm. to grief. And do you ever run into people who feel guilty for how long they've been grieving or something like that? Everything you asked actually intertwines really well with my answer. So Beautiful. to answer the last question, yes, most people I encounter feel guilt about their grief and the duration and the expression of it. What my day looks like as a grief coach and what I encounter the most is this guilt and this frustration over an inability to know what they're doing and if they're doing it correctly, as if there were a correct way to grieve. And so most of the days I spend engaging people in their stories, in their individual stories, outside of what they've expected, outside of how their partner is grieving or how their spouse, their siblings or their children are grieving, really embracing that individual story and helping them recognize like you as an individual are as unique as the grief you feel and vice versa, which means the way that you move through loss is going to look different than everyone around you, including duration, including expression, including the pressure that you feel to figure it out. Right. And so a lot of the time, our work together is dismantling what we've been taught is true of grief in our culture and how we can actually recognize ourselves in the grief process in a new way. Because when we grieve, we lose a million other little things. It's all secondary losses all day long. So for example, when my mom died, I lost a future where my children have, have a grandmother that they can go see. Right. And so every time I'm reminded of that, it's a little bit of grief again. And so Having the tools as a griever to recognize when those moments arise and know that I'm not going to be just derailed or thrown asunder every single time that comes to mind is a really empowering thing. And so my work focuses on how do I help empower people to recognize who they are now, who they want to become, where they're headed, and how they can embrace their story without just smushing all the grief and heavy parts of it to the side, because that doesn't work. We know it always comes back around. And so knowing how to address it on the front end really brings a lot of healing. Yeah. I love that. Hence your book with all those handy tools. That's the deal. (laughs) There we go. Well, tell us a bit more about your motivation. What gets you up and keeps you going every day? Hmm. That's a good question. So I started working in grief in 2020, of course, with the pandemic, my mom had died four years prior, but I didn't want to live in a world that was going to be full of all this untended, very visceral grief on the surface with every human we encountered. And so I started writing the book 
as a part of my own story and healing process, but really just recognizing like I've been talking about grief with people for a long time now, it's time to do something really intentional. And so the part that keeps me going is recognizing the difference and the impact made on individual levels every day. Every day I have someone that either as a client is feeling more confident or can point to somewhere in their life where they feel more authoritative over their own story, or I'm hearing from someone who's read the book or listened to my podcast or talked to a friend of a friend of a friend who read a quote on Instagram that I said, and it actually unlocked something in their grief process that they felt really trapped in. So what keeps me pushing in this is knowing that on a grand scale, the people that I'm teaching and the people that I'm coaching are going into their lives and teaching other people, which is creating this waterfall effect of grief literacy in our culture. But all hopefully in my mind, ideally for our entire generation and the generations to come because grief literacy, and even just knowing how to talk about loss or being aware that loss is right in under the surface. And it's not always just a death or people crying at a funeral. Grief is pervasive. The more we learn that and the more we embrace what that means, the better we can actually handle one another and become more united in who we are as I just people really. Mm, I love that. I was going to ask actually, and I think you already answered it, but (laughs) whether or not grief was always some extreme death or extreme Mm. kind of traumatic event, or do you have clients that I don't know, maybe it's like, I don't want to label somebody's experience as extreme or not, but it's maybe not a death. And it's something that like, I don't, I don't even know the words for it. Maybe, you know, the words for it. (laughs) I I got you. I got you. Yeah. So, I mean, clinically there are big T traumas and little T traumas, right? So there's little things that happen to us that are traumatic, that don't seem like, okay, the house burned down. And then there's big T traumas like the house burning down, but grief is not limited to death, nor is it limited to a breakup or a house burning down. It's little things. It's microaggressions. It's recognizing your best friend has grown distant. It's being accused of being a thief. It's a million things at once. And any of those experiences can become not only a trauma or an event where you go back to and realize your body is, is engaging it in the way it did when it first occurred, but your grief is just an emotional response and a physical and a mental response to something that you didn't expect and something that happened to you that took something. A lot of times, especially now, and this is where the pandemic really played into it because we know that people were dying, but there's also the loss of community. There's a loss of engaging. There's a loss of future plans. There's a loss of jobs. There was a loss of security there's a loss of certainty. There's a loss of trust. And so what we then as humans and grief supporters and grievers have the responsibility to do is really start to ask questions of ourselves that are honest instead of like, oh, well, I guess I can just power through it. Or there was purpose in my pain, actually being honest about, wow, that sucked. I don't think there was a reason for it. And that's actually okay. It's okay that I just had a loss and that everything is awful. And there's no purpose in my pain because we often, and this is something I do encounter a lot in grief work is we get caught up in looking for purpose or trying to sort a meaning out of what we've experienced. And the truth is there might not be any meaning to it. It might just suck. How can we then 
still show up for ourselves, still embrace what is true, what has happened to us and integrate it into who we are becoming so that we don't feel constantly derailed or so that when we are derailed, we feel empowered to recognize who we are and who we are becoming and move back into that. Mm, I love that. Is part of your, so do you only, do you ever run into people that are like, these questions weren't planned. These are off the cuff, as you can tell. (laughs) (laughs) Do you ever, (laughs) do you ever run into people that um, have qualms with just accepting the traumatic event as something that has no meaning and they try to seek meaning out of it. Like Mm -hmm. you ever run into that issue with clients or just people in your day to day? Yeah. I think it's really terrifying that there would be no meaning in something horrible that happens. I think it's really terrifying. And a lot of my work is within the four walls of the church. And so working with grievers who also carry faith is a very fascinating and beautiful intersection because the world of Christianity where I exist denies death in a lot of ways, denies the fact that loss is meaningless, (laughs) that there's not a plan for things. And without destroying someone's faith by any means, I get to ask some really tender questions of, well, what if both things are true? Because that's possible. And so that denial of, of, well, no, there's no meaning in this. Actually, there's a lot of freedom in admitting or confessing there's no meaning in this. Now, what do I do with it? Hmm. I love that. I love it. Cool. Well, (laughs) that is a a little conundrum. I could see people like there is no meaning, but I think um, it kind of talks about that in Ecclesiastes, right? Sure. Yep. It's like, it's all going to dust type of vibes. Uh, so I think that's, um, yeah. Alex Hormozy, he's like a nihilist. Do you know who he is? I don't know that I do. He's a big marketing guy, but he's yeah. also a nihilist. And he talks about how when things don't have meaning, you get the opportunity to assign meaning to it, which mm. is like, you know, your suffering didn't have any meaning, but, um, that doesn't mean you have to like let the rest of your life be meaningless or something right. like that, you know? I actually agree with that because the truth is we try to assign meaning as grief supporters to people's loss all the time. And what empowers a person to move through their grief is recognizing their values. What is meaningful to them and how do you align who you are and your story with those values that you carry. And they're not going to be the same values you had when you were 10 or the ones you expected to have now that you're in your, in this season in your life, but you are the one that chooses if there's meaning to it. So one of the things we talk a lot about in my work is platitudes, those statements that sound encouraging, but are actually quite harmful. Like everything happens for a reason, or God wouldn't give you more than you can handle, or they would want you to be happy, right? All of these statements that feel good to us to say and sound encouraging and sound meaningful, but they actually cause great damage to someone on the receiving end. With platitudes, however, I will not sit back and vilify them. I would at one point, I would have said they're all bad, burn them, don't say them ever again. But the truth is, if I am a person that has done the grief work in my to my extent that I'm capable and that is a conclusion I've come to, then I get to say that to myself. If I turn and offer it to someone else, then I'm offering my story in place of theirs. 
not okay. But if my story actually does carry great meaning to me, if I truly believe that everything happens for a reason and I have that perspective in my life, then that gets to be true for me. And that's aligning with my values and how I move through it. So I agree with that because we do assign and create meaning. That's all. We, I mean, that's what humans do with everything. Literally so it. That's yeah, it. <laughs> that's, that's all we do. So it's meaningful to create our own meaning and outcomes and expectations for things that even grief. There we go. Well, now we're going to jump into your dreams and goals. Tell us about your vision for your career as a grief coach and just your life. I would love to take grief coaching to a grander scale in the sense of like what I said earlier about being able to impact one person and knowing that one person is impacting others in their life. I, my ba- my brain says, okay, so if you impact 50 people at once and they go impact a person in each of their life and it's exponential. And so my hope is to continue speaking and showing up in events and on shows like this, but also continuing to write more books that draw people back into themselves to realize they have authority over their own life. Because my entire purpose of life is per- is pursuing what makes me fully alive and bringing others to a place where they can pursue it for themselves as well. There we go. There we go. So scale grief coaching and to what scale, if you had to get specific? Ooh, I have no idea how, how specific, I mean, from what, like one to Brene Brown, somewhere in between. I don't really like being influential. I, that's the thing, right? Okay. Like the, the responsibility I can handle, but the, uh, I don't know, the pedestal I don't ever want. I don't ever want to be someone's guru or someone's go-to other than to say this thing that you said inspired this in me. I don't want someone to say your words have become my scripture for life. I will say, whoa, that is the wrong (laughs) place to put me in your life because that's the responsibility that's not appropriate. Like that's not my role for people. I just want to be the person that says you actually have great capacity within you and it's up to you to pursue it because I can't do the grief work for someone else. And that's my only hesitation in like gaining attention for the work I do is that idea that it would become more damaging for someone than anything else. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. I love that. I, um, am recently I've launched this like mastermind group and it's not to help people with their grief, but help people pursue their dream lifestyle, mostly by breaking through financial barriers And I basically created it for me three years ago. And so I was like, man, if I had had this three years ago, this would have been baller. And kind of what I'm realizing is there was a change that happened between me now and me three years ago. And it was mostly like inner work and taking action. And while community and support really helps with that, it's like, you really can't do the work for people. Mm -hmm. And it's like, when you get involved, it's like, you want them to get the results because you want them to feel better <laughs> so totally. you can like um try to cross that line sometimes or at least I can try to cross that line sometimes mm-hmm. it just doesn't work it just doesn't mm-hmm. it's like I can't want it more than you want it for you right it's really not gonna work so I had a coach or I had a client once tell me about someone else who coached them and everything that was brought forth for this client was based on this coach's personal experience which is fine 
but it was all very prescriptive. These are the things that will help you because I recognize where you are and I've been there too. And I, that's already a red flag for me as a, in the coaching industry, but um, because there were no questions asked, but after, as I heard about this, I was able to ask questions and say like, so what is, is it meaningful for you? What does that feel like? Is that something that could be true for you that that would be effective? And the client was like, absolutely not. None of that made sense. It made sense for that person, but I don't know what they were thinking for me. And I said, well, they weren't, they were recognizing that they'd found something that worked and they put themselves in a coach position, which is very quickly how coaches go into that guru lifestyle of, I have the only answer. Here's the prescription for what ails you, which is unethical and really, really dangerous. So I'll stop there because I could go for a while. (laughs) (laughs) There we go. There we go. Well, awesome. Any other dreams or goals that you want to chat about? Hmm. I want to live on the beach somewhere. (laughs) No, not really. Other than just running away from it all and pretending that it's easy to live without pain and pretending all of this is just a bad dream. I gotcha. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if there were one or two people that you can meet right now. And this could be a specific person or a type of person. And they'd really help you take the next step towards scaling grief coaching and continuing to speak and get those books out there. Who would it be? And how would they do it? Man, you know, I feel like I just am in an industry that doesn't make good money unless you serve thousands of people. So I think I would just meet meet a financier or someone who could like, put me in position and say, here's all the money you need access to for whatever travel or conferences you need to put on, go impact people. I think that's it really. Cause I have so many frameworks in place. I have so many incredible people behind me that have purchased my book, that have shared my work, that are constantly sharing the work. It's just a matter of reach, I think. And grief coaching is not lucrative because people don't want it. (laughs) Nobody wants to admit that they're grieving. It's different. It's so different from therapy because what I do is not like listen to a person's story and give them that therapeutic response. What I do is hear their story and ask what they want and create action plans and create tools and and helping them embrace resilience in a way that is not forceful. So it's, it's not an easy, it's not an easy yes to give. So I think, yeah, I think if I had a big old bankroller behind me, I would be set. It'd be easy to do this. <laughs> How much money would the bankroller need? Do you think? I think billions because I would go everywhere. Yeah. And my family would have to come with me because it would be sad to leave them behind. <laughs> I gotcha. I gotcha. I'm trying to, I'm trying to think billions. Of you know, anybody <laughs> I'll start lower. I'll start lower every time, but genuinely think you might be able to get a couple million. Yeah. I I, would love it. Let's go. I'm just trying to think who would like, I'm really big on partnerships. And so like, you know, if you refer real estate business to a bank, they're going to sponsor your event, your real estate event, but with grief, yeah, it's, you're not like, there's not a lot of money to squeeze out of somebody. It's not, you have to get creative. The last event I did, I had a couple of sponsors who were both in the real estate industry. One was a broker, a mortgage broker for specifically around divorces. And the other is a real estate agent. And so I was able to very carefully and and a good friend of mine too. So it was easy to say like, I trust this person. Let me help you uh, 
if you are grieving something like this, this is the alignment. And this is, I would say, go to this person. So that partnership was easy and finding partnerships is typically quite easy. It's people who uh, have like the Mark Cubans of the world who could have the heart and have the, the, you know, the capital to say, yeah, this is perfect. I believe in it. Go do it. It's getting access to the Mark Cubans of the world (laughs) and saying like, you want to talk about loss? It can change everything for us. Let's just put on a conference. Let's go. But anyway. I bet you get Oprah to do it. Yeah, that's a good idea. Get her on the phone. (laughs) You know, her father just died after, I think he was in his late seventies, early eighties, and he just passed away and they had the most amazing relationship. And I guess I was reading about it uh, this morning. No, last night. And it was exactly it. I'm like, this is Oprah Winfrey and she's not untouchable. We all experience grief. It is the great equalizer. And we think we're immune because we have this weird hashtag blessed culture that has really skewed ideas about what favor and success looks like. And yet at the end of the day, even Oprah experiences excessive, deep grief. So yeah, I mean, you're not wrong. She would be behind it because she understands the depth and she's going through it herself yeah Mm. Yeah, for sure well what are the most important one or two things that everyday people can do to really help you scale grief coaching to help me scale grief coaching Mm -hmm. hmm I would say listen to restorative grief with Mandy Capehart I have a weekly podcast I do that is part interviews with people who are average everyday people who've lost or who've experienced loss or who are also grief professionals. And then, uh, I do just short little 15 minute conversations around the things that come up in my grief coaching practice or questions that people ask me online. So I love hearing from people that are listening to it or seeing people share about it online. Uh, so I would say, yeah, listen to the podcast or come follow me on Twitter or Instagram and, and let's just actually have the dialogues about grief because that makes a big difference when we're actually comfortable talking about it. We won't be so afraid when it comes up in our lives or the lives of people that we care about. I feel that. I feel that. And what is your, Oh, my bad. We're now (laughs) jumping into our thriving three. (laughs) What's your favorite book, movie, or podcast? Pick one. I may go with the three amigos, the movie, Tim, that's my favorite. It's so dumb and it's so necessary to laugh at really stupid things. I've never it seen just it. Is. Oh my gosh. It's <laughs> terrible. It's so bad. But there are some moments that Steve Martin and uh, Martin short are just brilliant. Chevy chase is fine. Chevy chase is whatever. It's those three actors, but, uh, Steve Martin and Martin Short are comedic gold. And that movie just makes me laugh and makes me remember there is nothing you can't do. Because the movie is based on these three actors who think they're cast in a movie in Mexico. So they leave California, they go to Mexico. When it turns out they weren't being cast in a movie, there's actually a town that's being threatened by this gang of people who are dangerous and they show up to defend the town. And the gang is like, who are these dorks? And they're like, we're the three amigos. We're movie stars. They think they're filming a movie. It's, <laughs> it's amazing. So bad. I can see how that could be funny. I could also see how that could not be okay. <laughs> oh, it's terrible. 
it's terrible. Gotcha. And what is but when it's we, older? Oh, yeah. Even yeah. Yeah. So it's worse. <laughs> exactly. Uh, what is one way you like to take care of yourself? Hmm. One way. I'm trying to think of what I didn't say already. I really enjoy being with people that are easy to love. I love being around people that even when you're both in the midst of chaos, have the ability to hold space for you. So I like to escape from all the busy. I'm constantly working. I think I mentioned it earlier, like everywhere I go, work pops up because my radar is up looking for grief and looking for opportunities to help others or even just show up and hold space. So I really love being around people where I don't have to do that, but I can also be the one that has space held for me when I can just relax and know that we're all grieving and it's going to be fine. I don't have to fix it. I don't have to be everybody's everything. Mm. I got you. I got you. And what is one action step you can take right now or continue to take if you're already doing it to meet that financier? Mm. And let's set a, let's set a price on because there are a lot of them. Let's go. Okay. Somebody who can finance you five million. Okay. Five million. Ooh, let's go. Cool. Ten. Let's go. Ten. Okay. 10 million. Someone who will bankroll me $10 million, just access to the bucket. And will they, will uh, they see a return on that 10 million or is it like 10 million just supporting the cause? I think it's supporting the cause. The more I do, I would love to be more than a nonprofit and actually turn a profit. That'd be great someday. I don't know what that looks like. Uh, I think that's, you know, someday book sales, but really the, what it comes down to is making connections with somebody who can just create opportunities for me to be in front of people that need to hear grief from a different perspective. So what can I do toward that end? I guess continue to network. Yeah. That's all I'm doing. I, I, and I, I say that in a, with a little hesitation because networking can be so grimy. It can be so inauthentic. And because I live my life in a way as much as possible, that is authentic, that is honest, that does not really bend over to accommodate much. Uh, It's hard to network when you're not willing to play the game, so to speak. So when I say I want to run away and meet people who can show up for me as I am, I think continuing to network with those authentic people who are willing to be honest and push back and recognize the values that we've placed as a society are really not so in alignment with who we are now or who I am, then that's the type of person I'm, I'm wanting to work with and to partner with. So yeah, just continuing to network and use the glorious internet to meet people like you where things are different and I'm not just trapped by the location I'm in or COVID keeping us in our homes and not sending us out into the world anymore. So for sure, for sure. I love it. Where do you think that person with $10 million ready to bankroll, but also values authenticity to the extent that you do. What do you think their day looks like? Like at oh, 7 a.m., what are they doing? At 12 p.m., what are they doing? And at 6 p.m., what are they doing? Hmm. I imagine the morning is a lot of self-care. Okay. And the middle of the day is a lot of really dedicated, intentional work. 
is it isolated self-care in the morning or is it like exercise with friends or is it like meditation is it long hikes is it Hmm. i think it's a mixture i think that and there's balance like i think of someone who is authentic as someone who knows exactly what they need which that's going to be based on who we are as people and what we value in the season. So what I need in this season is more meditation. Whereas last season I needed more running with buddies on the trail. So I hear the question, but it's really hard for me to nail down what I would think, because I don't want to just project what I think success looks like. And what I would say, well, this is what they must be doing if they're like me, because this is what I would be doing. Yeah. Hmm. I think there would just be a lot of intentionality in every step, no matter what the action is, that it would be an intentional, very present-minded person. That's where I struggle. I get very future-focused on the next thing. I hardly make time to celebrate the present thing. If I reach a goal, I'm like, cool, we did it. Next, now that's out of the way and I can do this next thing. I think the person who I could partner with that would lead me really effectively into spaces where I could lead more effectively would be someone that says, actually, here's how we stay present. Cause I work on that every day and nine times out of 10, I blow it <laughs> uh, one time of the day and the attempt I can be very present and say, Oh, I did so good. And it felt so grounding, but being present is not my strong suit. So recognizing, finding someone who I could be even mentored by that, that would be in that position is I think the ideal for me. Okay. Okay. So they would be an extremely present financier. Yeah. A potential mentor for you. Yeah. There we go. Love it. Where do you think you'd bump into them? That's the last follow-up question on this point. Shoot. I hope at a winery because that's the best place to meet people or on the water. (laughs) (laughs) I feel that. I feel that. All right. Now we're going to jump into our last series of questions. And um, I didn't, tell you these ahead of time. So if you don't have any answers, that's okay. They're (laughs) fairly hard questions. Just be like, yeah, I don't know. And then we'll move on. Sounds good. Okay. Yep. All righty. They also require a lot of pretext. So stick with me. A lot of people have come on the podcast and they've said that the catalyst that helps people change from having a fixed mindset, not willing to accept help and not willing to accept change to having a growth mindset, being willing to accept help and being willing to accept change. The catalyst that helps people make that change is a personal choice that happens after either extreme inspiration or extreme desperation. Do you agree, disagree, anything to add or subtract? I mean, growth mindset is something that comes with partnership. I don't think anyone can just recognize, oh, damn, this is too hard. This isn't enough or things are too desperate or, oh my God, I can't believe I never thought of that before. I think growth mindset comes from partnering with someone who embodies a growth mindset, who understands the power of yet and invites us into it rather than prescribing it as something we need to do or should do in order to succeed. Because growth mindset is easy to fall in and out of. No matter what we're carrying, if we have loss or trauma that's covering the surface of everything we do, growth mindset takes a back seat. And finding a way forward back into hope is not something we do alone. So I guess I'm down the middle of that answer, (laughs) of that conclusion, because there's no way, there's no way to embody a growth mindset by yourself. 
So you're it less on the personal choice side of things and more on like, there's an outside factor that inspires that growth mindset in you. I think as, yeah, I think as we grow, we are engaging our lives in a way that we are expanding who we are and including what served us and leaving behind what didn't. And so as we spiral upwards into this new version of who we are, whether we have a growth mindset or not, we're encountering things that we've come across before who we become and how we encounter those things is based on totally a personal choice to an extent. But at the same time, there are so many factors that limit my ability to make a personal choice that I could choose to be a millionaire tomorrow, but that wouldn't mean that I'm suddenly a millionaire tomorrow, or I could choose to have, you know, a book deal in the works when all the things. So yeah, I think it's, I think saying that anything is a personal choice is a really, really um, kind of privileged perspective to put on, on people who may not have the ability to access or may not know that the growth mindset is something that can empower them through what they're experiencing. I gotcha. There we go. And why do you think, given the same amount of extreme inspiration and extreme desperation, some people make the choice to change and others don't? I think it goes back to what I just said about privilege. I think it's not necessarily a choice. Sometimes we're just surviving and survival mode and coping mechanisms. Those are prevalent in loss. I see them every day in myself and in others, and they serve us for a season. So extreme desperation, hitting rock bottom, or the most inspired you've ever been. Those are emotional experiences and our emotions can dictate big thoughts and big behaviors, but they can change just as quickly. And so I think really it comes down to cultivating habits and perspectives and partnering with people that can cheer us on, but also point to us where we need support and, or where we are not living up to who we say we want to be. And so yeah there we go and hmm, i'm trying to see if this next question will be redundant for you i'm just gonna <laughs> ask it because i can't think that fast go for it. <laughs> so some people need a smaller amount of desperation or inspiration to change and others need a larger more consistent amount what do you think establishes that breaking point and can it be influenced hmm. I think it goes back to a lot of who we were and who we were surrounded by as children. So in the work that I do, I also use the Enneagram, which is a personality. I mean, to distill it to its most pathetic, it's a personality profile, but it's really not. Uh, It takes a look at our motivations instead of our behaviors. And at our core, some of us are more internally and intrinsically motivated because who we are is this future-oriented, forward-thinking person versus someone who's more past-oriented, who ruminates, who reflects, and who spends a lot of time in their mind. So I don't think it's a matter of external influences all the time. I think there's a lot of internal influences that we maybe as a culture haven't remembered to validate or to consider. And we look at our externals and say, well, I wasn't really inspired by Tony Robbins. So I went and I started a coaching practice. Well, no, I actually intrinsically am someone who hates injustice and I see grief and the diminishing of grief as an injustice. And so I know because of who I am and because of what I believe in and where I've gone, I can step in the gap for people and bring them into a place where 
their coping mechanisms aren't their first go-to anymore or where they see survival mode and recognize I get to make a different choice now because I'm empowered and because I have tools that I can actually use that are accessible, not because I got this amazing facial and now I feel like cloud nine, the world is my oyster. I just think that intrinsically we are who we are. And if we can embrace that and bring that to the table, then all of those other things that stand in our way really diminish. I gotcha. That makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm rattling it through my head. This is why I asked. So sometimes I'll be asking these questions and I'll be like, man, I'm gonna get the same answers every time. But then every now and then I ask these questions and a completely different answer comes. And I would say, you know, the, the beginning of like who we were and who we were surrounded by, but the focus on the intrinsic part, I would say that is a unique aspect of the answer. Mm. Good. So I'm trying to figure out how to capture it in my notes. I guess it's on the podcast, so I can always go Yeah, back. you got it recorded. Just listen back. <laughs> there we go. You can always email me. Hey, Mandy, what? What did you say? <laughs> I was like, good question. I don't know. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And we got one last question for you. Um, so for this question, I want you to keep in your mind somebody who has a really fixed mindset, not willing to accept help, not willing to accept change. And Atomic Habits, James Clear talks about the four laws of changing your behavior. And the laws are make it obvious, make it attractive, make it easy, and make it satisfying. With that context in mind, and the avatar I just kind of told you to keep in your head, how can we create an environment that makes it obvious, more obvious, more attractive, more easy, and more satisfying for that person who's not willing to accept help, fixed mindset, not willing to accept change, to make the choice that will change their life? Mm. I read that book a while ago. And one of the things I had, the problem I had with it is kind of in relation to the avatar you're describing, because a fixed mindset is the result, is a result of trauma. It's a result of not feeling empowered, not feeling like you have access to anything or having feeling like a victim or actually being victimized repeatedly and believing that that is all that you are worth. So I think for me, affirming a person's worth, affirming their value, removing the barriers to flourish in who they are, regardless of their circumstances and treating people with dignity in a way that actually makes them feel loved is the way you break through people's barriers through their fixed mindsets. It has nothing to do with, um, you know, you could give that person every tool. You could put them with $5 million in front of the most amazing education they've always dreamed of and give them the job of their dreams. And they're still going to be that person who feels like they haven't been valued or doesn't feel like they have the value or have earned or are worth that kind of an investment. And so I think it really comes back to creating an environment where people know that they're worth the time and effort it takes to grieve and to heal and to recognize where they have been victimized. Like you've had a short end of the stick your entire life. What does that mean for who you are? If everything changes, like right now, if we can change everything or we did, everything is different. Let's say, who are you now? Because who you want to be and the values that you embody are who you're going to become, whether you name them or not. If they're subconscious, you're still going to live them out. And I think for us as helpers and coaches and people in the industries that want to encourage people to growth, it takes partnering with them and believing in them when they can't believe in themselves. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. No, I couldn't agree more. Uh, couldn't agree more. I um, I have big dreams and goals of raising the standard of living across the world to the point mm. where nobody really needs for shelter, food, water, mm. and just safety too. I think safety is a big. Yep. Yep. Um, and part of that, I came up with this idea. I was like, I really think if we just approached people, you know, the least of these among us who are really struggling, who we tend to neglect, if we just approached them with a one-on-one 18 year commitment of like mm. unconditional love, I think the world would be transformed. <laughs> like yeah. if we just kind of pair people up and like, Hey, for the next 18 years, you guys are going to unconditionally love each other. And it's like the type of unconditional love that a good parent has for their child of like, literally I'm going to do anything for you. And I think if you paired people up and it was like outside of your family, outside of your friend group, man, I really think lives would change. I really do. So I completely agree that creating an environment that just affirms people's worth and their value. I think that's the most important thing because that's mm-hmm. what we do everything from. So, Yeah. You're, you're talking about helping people hear one another's stories and bear witness to their lives because when you know somebody, it's really hard to hate them oh, when yeah. you know where they've come from and you understand their pain and you can empathize even a little bit. It really disarms the bullets that you've carried around waiting to shoot. It just becomes impossible to dismiss their humanity. And if you still can, then I pretty much believe you didn't hear their story or you were determined to prove me wrong, which that's on you, man. <laughs> or you need to have your story heard. Yeah. Cause you've never, absolutely never felt that way. And so you can't imagine a yeah. world where people feel that way, but well, awesome. Mandy, is there anything else you want to chat about before we sign off? Gosh, I don't know. I don't think so. We talked about so much. My brain is on fire now with ideas and (laughs) (laughs) directions to go with it and $5 million benefactors that I can partner with. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. That's awesome. Well, the money is definitely out there. So it's just a matter of meeting that person, right? Yep. That's right. Cool. Well, Mandy, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Of course, and if you guys are listening to this and you loved what Mandy had to say, you loved her vibe, make sure to check out her show. Go ahead and share it with some people. Give it a like, give it a rating. And um, yeah, yeah, hold space for people. Talk to Mandy about your trauma, if that's (laughs) where you're at right now. And as we always ask, shoot this podcast to one to three people you know need to hear this message. Go ahead and give us a five-star review on iTunes. All the ways to contact Mandy will be in the show notes. I forgot to say that part. On that note, we're out. Guys, thanks for listening. Make sure to reach out to our guests and help them accomplish their dreams and goals if you resonated with them. If you're looking for any intentional masterminds or one-on-one coaching to accomplish your dreams and goals, make sure to check out the website, workwithtimmydouglas.com, and contact me either there or on social media. That's all I got. Have a blessed day.